Hello, everyone, and Holy Week blessings to all of you. This is Kevin Baxter, and welcome to this week's NCEA podcast. We're super excited to bring you this conversation between myself and Jill Annabelle, our uh, Executive Director of Academic Excellence at NCEA, where we talk about Catholic micro schools. And uh, we have an upcoming book that'll be coming out in just uh, in just about a month or so called Greatness and Smallness, A Vision for Catholic Micro Schools. So I know you're going to really enjoy the conversation today. Also want to highlight the fact that we have our NCEA convention next week. We've got wonderful keynote speakers from Father Michael Schmitz to Gloria Purvis to Byron Pitts. Um, and we just know it's going to be a wonderful opportunity to be ignited, to be united, and to be inspired with Catholic educators from around the country. So if you haven't already registered, please do so now. You can find the registration link at 2021.ncea.org. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. I've got my colleague, Jill Annabelle, uh, who's co-hosting with me. Um, Director of Academic Excellence here at NCEA. So, Jill, how are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you, Kevin. Yes, and that conversation is going to center around Catholic micro schools. Um, this is a topic, obviously, that's been um, relevant uh, in the education world, especially after the COVID pandemic um, kind of caused everyone to rethink how education works. And so thinking uh, intentionally about small schools, schools with uh, low enrollment and how to support them is really impetus for this. So we're going to talk about where NCEA has been in terms of Catholic micro schools. And then Jill and I have uh, been co-working on a book uh, that is due to come out later this spring um, to kind of give guidance and support and kind of a framework for how Catholic schools can move to this model. So we're super excited to talk about that work that we've been doing um, with all of you today. So that sounds good, Jill. It does. And I, it's just so funny how God's work um, we never see coming. And when I met you, Kevin, the first time I met you was when you came to Grand Rapids to the diocesan office with Dave Faber, the superintendent, because you were taking some notes on Catholic micro schools in our diocese. And so for the work and from my end to have come full circle now to be working with you on this project is really a blessing um, that I didn't see coming. So I can't wait for you to share a little bit more about your journey to that got to that moment because you were on fire about micro schools then. And that was a that was a while ago now. Yes. Well, it's terrific. And your expertise, obviously, in terms of the schools you've worked with uh, in the Diocese of Grand Rapids is, is so valuable as well. Um, so just a little brief intro on kind of how we've gotten to the point uh, or how we've gotten to where we are today. Um, I was brought on as the chief innovation officer at NCEA in July of 2019. And so my task was to look at a number of different things, but one of those areas was, uh, was school site innovation. And we had done a number of things innovatively in LA when I was superintendent in terms of dual language immersion and STEM and, and all of these different areas. But the the, the seeming focus that was really calling out when I when I started at NCA was this idea of these uh, low enrolled schools. So I asked for some data from NCA and asked how many schools in the United States have 150 students or less. And I was shocked when the number came back. And and out of our over 6,000 schools, or approximately 6,000 schools, uh, 1,500 
um, came back as having a, an enrollment of 150 or less. And that's a full 25% of our Catholic schools. And that kind of made me realize this is a really pressing issue. And it's not news to anyone listening to this podcast that we've had a challenge with Catholic schools closing over the last number of years. And and that those closures obviously are driven so much by the fact of um, low enrollment and the, the subsequent financial pressure put on schools. And so that started my work. And as Jill already alluded to, it, it took me um, the fall really of 2019 uh, looking at this. And, and we had plans to, to launch um, kind of a professional development kind of model framework for the start of the 2020 2021 school year. And then, as we all know, COVID-19 hit and uh, and everything got put um, on hold for a bit while we s- scrambled and tried to support schools in their remote uh, remote learning um, focus. And so we revisited it back uh, in the fall and then Jill came on board, which we're blessed. Uh, we're blessed by here at NCEA. And um, and the, and and then the decision was made, I want to say, November, December of 2020 to turn it into a book to put a put it out as a publication of ncea and so we've converted the work into a document and uh and that's kind of where we are today right Jill? yeah yeah and it's just it is amazing because the more you think about the 1500 schools that are in the size that we are calling catholic micro school um knowing that's not a, a def, you know that's not a a defined, okay, you have 151 students, so you're not a Catholic micro school. It doesn't work that way. But when we talk about our smaller schools, it's funny because some of our smaller schools have been small and thriving and uh, forever. Like they've been by design that size and there's so much to learn from that. And that's what people will read in our in our book too, is the examples of, you know, a school that's been at 120 students for the last 30 years, what are they doing right? Um, but then in this era where everyone had started the 2021 school year with all kinds of innovation that they never would have considered prior to a pandemic, we now have a lot of new interest in a small school model. And we're seeing that interest emerge out of you know people potting their kids out of necessity because their school is not open. We, we have seen it in homeschooling networks forever. And we see it in our Catholic school populations that are shrinking or growing or are seeing themselves in new sizes that they were never in. And so now is the time to talk about what makes a strong, effective Catholic micro school. And um, I've really enjoyed the conversations I've had with a number of people in order to put examples into the book. Wonderful. So what we're going to do at this in this podcast is kind of walk you walk the listeners through how we've set up the book and just have some conversation around these concepts. And and what we've done with the book is tried to look at it. Why are we doing Catholic? Why are Catholic micro schools needed? Why is this the time? Um, what are Catholic micro schools? What do we mean when we use that term and specifically in related to in relation to Catholic schools? And then how? How do we set up this model and, and how do we think about uh, kind of starting a, a, a sustainable model that's going to be um, you know viable for the foreseeable future? So we're going to start with the why. So Jill, um, why do we talked about the the number the 25 percent, but why Catholic micro schools now? I think now is the time, and I think everyone has such energy right now. Um, well, everyone's exhausted, so there's there's ex- exhaustion and excitement 
that people are willing to think differently about schools and what makes a school. We've had this, you know, Kevin and I, we've talked about this a lot, like what makes a Catholic school? Um, and, but I also know, you know, we have, we have enrollment decline nationwide. We know that. Um, but just because your school is shrinking doesn't mean it has to close. We have many examples of schools that right-sized. And so the why really comes in part out of necessity um, because you have to operate a school that's small much differently than how you'd operate a school with 500 plus students. Um, but there's also, this is an era of innovation. So if not now, then when would we take a leap to try something different? And I love that you bring innovation into this, Jill, because I think that's such an important thing to keep in mind. Um, there's a obviously a strong focus uh, in the philanthropic community among many superintendents and principals and people who are committed to Catholic schools across the country that we need to think differently about how we how we do Catholic schools and how can we be more creative and responsive to you know the educational realities of today than maybe you know than than, than they were 20 years ago, and I think. One of the things I've really come to in terms of this question of why is that we're probably late on this, and this is not to cast you know any kind of aspersions on anyone before, but but I wish we kind of started this work 10, 15 years ago, because I think so many of those schools, and you're so right to say that we've seen some great schools that have 120 kids and they've been like that for 30 years and they're thriving. But I would say the vast, vast, vast majority of those 1,500 schools don't aren't doing it intentionally. And, and, the, and the fear is that they're on a pathway to closure. And, and of course, you, you talk about that, those 1500 schools, and then you talked about the ones that what, 151, 155, 160, you know, 175, those that, that could be in that category uh, just in a matter of years. And so I think the why is just, it's an innovative approach to saying this is a critical issue for Catholic schools. And, and Catholic schools don't just serve students. I mean, obviously they do students and families, but they serve a community. They serve a parish community. They serve a role. And if we can save uh, some Catholic schools by giving them tools to help manage um, their finances, uh, ensure that they're delivering high quality uh, faith formation and Catholic identity, really solid academic instruction, and we can ensure that they're going to be stable for the foreseeable future, then I think that's just a great outcome and a great innovative approach to how we want to do our work here at NCEA. Mm -hmm. I think so too. And there's so much to learn from those who have um who have sustained their schools in these sizes for a long time. And in my experience in the Diocese of Grand Rapids, we hired a number of principals, like excited, um, energetic new principals in these small schools who brought so much energy to them um, on top of the tradition of excellence in, in the communities that they served, that they're, Although they would want to see their schools larger, they could sustain a, a bigger size. They don't have to. Like not everything is hanging on their enrollment number necessarily in order to be sustainable. It's not grow or close. It is truly um, right-sized for this model um, with potential to grow, but to not become oversized because there's so much quality that can happen when you have a smaller student population. Yeah, and, we, and we've talked a lot about this, Jill, too, that, that the fear in some ways for some schools, uh, obviously, um, not all schools, but that they're focused on those kids who aren't there. They're focused on the, you know, the kids in the charter school, the kids in the public school or the kids who've left the school. 
And that's not a bad thing because you want to obviously try to grow enrollment and bring more kids into the school. That's a, that's a worthy goal. But the fear is that if you focus um, too much on that, then you could be neglecting the kids within your school, neglecting the families within your school. And so we really want to make sure that this model says that you've got value. If you have 120 kids in the school, that's a tremendous value to that school. And try to really focus on ensuring that what they're experiencing within that Catholic school setting is what we want every single child to experience within a Catholic school setting, and that parents are seeing that value and students are receiving that education um, that's going to benefit them. Yeah, absolutely. And we know, and this isn't about like the logistics here, but we do know that it's so much harder to recruit new families than it is to retain them through relationship. And and we've all had experiences of this. But if we could keep every family in our Catholic schools, um, that is a blessing. And I think if we've learned nothing else in the era of a pandemic, we have learned to take care of our own. We've learned to take care of each other. We've learned the complexities of family life and um, that relationship with the school. And a lot of those strengths our small schools have done all along. And I think um, if we bring that spirit to this work, then then we're doing we're doing good. You know, it's OK if we shrink a little bit as long as we make adjustments um, and we don't wish for the day that we were and then put in the size of where that school was. Um, I think we need to breathe new life into into where we are right now and and how we can stay sustainable at these sizes. That's really great, Jill. And I think that kind of maybe closes us out of this why question. Um, and I'll just maybe share this is that so many in Catholic education are thinking about growth. And that's because they believe in the value of Catholic schools. They want more kids in our schools. The more kids in our schools, the more formed in their faith, the stronger our church, the stronger all the outcomes that we know come from that. And that's really worthy. What we're saying is we have to have a little bit of a paradigm shift within our thinking. And that paradigm shift has to come from Groups like NCEA and university partners, dioceses, superintendents, principals, and our philanthropic and our giving community. I think everyone has to start to think about what really is a valuable Catholic school? Because in some circles, it's a growth or nothing, right? We have to get up to a certain number. And if we're not hitting that number, that's a failure. And we have to recognize that um, because of our history, our recent history, if we're flat that could be a huge success. And we've talked about this, you know, in 2030, if we have the same number of Catholic school students enrolled across the country as we have today, I think almost everyone involved in Catholic school education would say that's a win and that's a victory. And so we have to just kind of understand that some of this is a paradigm shift, get out of this idea that growth is the only metric to demonstrate success. And we can have really high, valuable outcomes coming in all of these different areas in a small school environment and that's a tremendous value uh, for that Catholic school and for that community. Right, absolutely. And, and that's not to undermine the fact that we, we do want growth and that certain schools have potential for growth more so than others, right? When, the more you study your neighborhoods and your structures and what you can do, um, but when you do consider the vitality of that school, um, finding the right size to fit the community is the aim. And um, and that's that's also okay. <laughs> I think that we need permission to say that's also okay. If I have if I've reached every um, every family of this community who is seeking a Catholic school, um, then I've done my job here. And now it's my job to uh, care for them and to let these students thrive um, in our schools through graduation. That's great. 
All right, so let's move to the what question. And uh, and this is a great one, and I'm going to put Jill on the spot because we've had lots of conversations around this, and it's not an easy question to answer. But when we talk about micro schools, maybe think about micro schools, and then what's a Catholic micro school? What 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 is that when we when we're we're talking about it and we're describing it, Jill? All right, so I'm going to quote the book, which means we can't cut this part, Kevin. We're going to have to keep <laughs> this line. All right, so here we go. So we are using the term Catholic micro school to refer to a sustainable Catholic school that is rooted in the tenets of Catholic faith, but that has employed excellence in faith formation, academic programs, and operational vitality while maintaining a student population. And this is where it's kind of hard, but where that student population is probably smaller than its neighboring schools. We keep having in our head it's maybe around 150 students or less. But for some communities, that's very small. And like, so it's hard. So in the Diocese of Grand Rapids, that's like the average Catholic school size. So that's not that's not that small to us. But if if a smaller Catholic school is 300 compared to the legacy of that school has always been a thousand students, then a 300 student um, Catholic school could be considered a micro school. It really depends on how you're using your faculty and how you're, how you're balancing your budget and all of those pieces too, which are um, all the parts that we'll go through throughout the book. And I should stress that most of our conversations around this question, we're thinking K-8 schools. Um, obviously, high schools are relevant to this conversation, and they could be part of this. But but uh, just for people listening in, most of our thinking around this wraps around the K-8 uh, parish school model um, that people might be most familiar with. Absolutely. Um, but I'm but Kevin, I'm excited to hear from others who maybe have a K-12 parish school or even small Catholic high schools. Um, I can think of a few, you know, that also have to do this type of thinking. So honestly, we know that this book and opening this can of worms kind of is is going to grow our understanding of this over time because there's excellence out there. We, I just don't think we've been talking about it as much as we should have been. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, some of this comes from the fact that we've uh, tragically um, seen Catholic schools close over the, the last number of years. And um, just from my own perspective, I'll always be surprised sometimes. Having been superintendent in Los Angeles, we had some very small, very low enrolled schools that were able to sustain themselves. Um, obviously, we never had a, a set structure like we're talking about here. So um, so some of them and many of them were scrambling each and every year. But then I'd see a, a, another neighboring diocese, and I won't ever name names here, but they would have closed a Catholic school with 200 students because it was too low. And I used to think, well, gosh, gosh, if we had 200 students, we probably wouldn't have had to close that school. And so that's the the definition might be a little bit moving target, depending on what your reality is within your diocese. I think what we want people to be thinking about is we don't want the death knell. I remember when I was a principal, people would sometimes say, oh, if you drop under 220 kids, you're on the list to close. You know, you're on a list to closure or something like that. And um, and I think we have to just be careful about somehow putting a fixed number on that. We want to provide supports and, and guidance so that if you are um, heading toward uh, a reality that's going to be um, going to be lower enrollment than you're anticipating, then there are some strategies, there's some processes, there's some steps you can take to uh, to become more viable and uh, and more sustainable. Yeah, I think that's true. I, an example comes to mind. So one of the principals I was talking with, she said to me, 
you know, Jill, when I first took this role as principal, I was so scared to tell parents that we had to do a multi-age classroom, that we had to have students from multiple grades in the same class. But it all became messaging over a couple of years of her learning how that model could work really well. She realized that that was a strength of the school and not, not that our school should feel exclusive, but there's something about, about the intentionality of a small school for her to say, no, we, our school has a hundred students in it. And yeah, that means multi-age classrooms. It's not, oh no, this year I have to do a split or combined classroom because of enrollment shrinking. That's a much different message than I am intentionally understanding the strengths of a multi-age classroom and using this, even if we have another extra 50 kids next year or whatever it might be. So the intentionality there is, is something we can all learn from because she was so scared of something, but it was because the vision had never been in that community before for that model. And I love that word intentionality, Jill. I think you're absolutely right about that. And maybe that's another huge outcome of, of being able to put a document like this out from NCEA, because I think there is sometimes embarrassment or shame, or you want to hide the numbers because you're, you're concerned that they're low or, and, and what we want to tell principals and superintendents that you can be intentional about this. You can tell your community, you can tell people around that, yeah, we have a hundred students, we have 120 students, we have um, whatever number that is, but we're intentional about it. And, and we can, we can, you know, we, we have a balanced budget. Uh, we're providing a high quality faith-filled education to students. We're providing great value to parents and families. We're connected to our parish. Um, and you can, you can speak with authority that your school is a high quality school, even if your enrollment's not not. And so we want to kind of take that stigma away from enrollment somehow being an indicator of value. Um, that could potentially be the case, of course, but it doesn't have to be. Um, you can you can be intentionally excellent and have a, and have a, a low enrolled school, and we want to give people that confidence mm -hmm. to speak to that. Absolutely. You know, another example comes to mind, Kevin, as you're describing that for any of our principals or superintendents who have been able to open a new school where a Catholic school hadn't previously existed. We know that that intentional smallness happens in the first year of a school um, because you don't go from nothing to 200 students in the first year of, of a brand new school. And so there's a lot of value we can learn from how new schools open and the feasibility studies around those um, that allow us to see appropriate growth or sustained um, student populations that are right sized for that community. I can't imagine we are opening, and, and I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, I can't imagine we are opening any schools right now that we think in a couple of years we'll have a thousand students. I would imagine if we're gonna open a new Catholic school, um, it's going to be small by intentionally for, for, the, first, um, for the first five to 10 years. So I, we, there's plenty of, of leaders among us who have done that work. And I think the same can be true for a school who is right-sizing their population on the opposite end. They're going from a giant school model to now a micro school. And I think some great lessons there too, in terms of starting a new school, how you staff to what your reality is with regard to enrollment and other things that we'll get into the how section about uh, ways schools need to transition to become more sustainable. And one final part of the what micro schools I think is really important to stress um, is that we have small schools 
in rural areas of the country, in rural parts of dioceses, and we have small schools and urban centers of, of cities, um, and and all parts, you know, all different demographic areas, all different economic areas. And for uh, for our work, we've really tried to say this model should work whether you're an urban inner city school serving a low income population, or you're a rural school serving that similar type of population. Um, the, the tenets and the, and the framework and the ideas that we're trying to lay out in this book should be relevant no matter where you're located in terms of the socioeconomic uh, strata. Absolutely. And, and no matter which community you are serving, um, of those you just described, Kevin, it's so important to understand the needs of the families because you are probably going to deliver an instructional model that is different than anything they've seen before. And whether they're Catholic or non-Catholic, uh, rural or urban, they're going to need to understand what it means to be um, excellent in a Catholic school. And, um, and they're going to see innovations in your school that you're going to have to describe over and over again every time you bring in a new student or a new grade as you graduate out families who are with you from the start and new ones come in. And you have new board members and you have a new pastor. All these times you're going to have to re-advocate for intentional smallness, um, which may not have been the experience of these families or community members um, in the past. So that gives us a great opportunity to transition into how. Um, and we'll talk about how, but I, I just want to play off what you just said, Jill, because I think it's really, really relevant to this, that one of the first things you're going to have to do uh, when you think about when, you, when you're going to recognize this and you want to move intentionally to this model and you're going to make these decisions, the first how that you really have to get right is advocate, advocate for the value of this model. Educate yourself. There's great research out there around how small schools can be a very effective learning environments for young people, how multi-age can be an effective model uh, with varying grade levels, varying ability levels within a classroom, because you're going to have to advocate this to your community. Um, you need to be able to talk to your current parents, even prospective parents, to communicate why this is valuable. So there's a big advocacy piece to this, uh, and that's maybe the first thing about how that we want to stress in terms of moving to that micro school uh, model. Absolutely. And I always default to collaboration. I assume that people want to collaborate and maybe that's not the case for every individual in the world. But I will say like there's strength in numbers. We are we know that we have 1500 Catholic schools under 150 students. So even if you're not seeing what you need in a text or in a research base, you are also among um, among the giants who are able to share what they've done in sustainable ways. And we're hoping that this text brings some of that to light. All right. So the how, we'll get into the how now. Um, we talked about advocacy. That's very, very important. Um, networking, which Jill just alluded to in terms of other schools going through something similar. I think that'll be a big piece of this and we can talk more about that. But the first how we want to really stress is that we are thinking about this as being rooted in the NESBEX, the National Standards and Benchmarks for Effective Catholic Schools, which obviously... Uh, I think many, if not all, Catholic school educators around the country are familiar with. Um, and these are standards that will lead to effective Catholic schools. We firmly believe this. We've seen this. Um, they've been implemented and adopted uh, around the country over the last decade. And so we're really anchoring a lot of this work um, around these standards to say, even though if you you might have a, a lower enrollment um, than, than, a, than another school, you still want to think about the NESBEX as being those defining 
defining anchors to to guide your school. Absolutely. And what's funny, um, when you think back, anyone who's been on accreditation teams or self-studies of your school against against the standards, um, you realize that although sometimes you'll hit um, one of the standards or benchmarks that alludes to, uh, the, you know, that you have a giant school with an advancement director and all these things, um, for the most part, you can find excellence regardless of school size. And, um, and, and that is, that became a very good way for us to root these conversations of the how, because you're not going to just not do certain things because you're small. And I think sometimes that happens out of necessity, but with intentionality, you can still address all of the areas of the NESVACs while, um, maintaining a small school size. So um, we'll talk maybe specifically about the Nesbex in a second too. I think the other big how, and especially as you, because I think about this in a couple of ways. Number one, you could start a new micro school, I suppose, right? And say, we're going to be intentionally small from the start. But I would imagine that would not be common, that the vast majority of schools that are either listening to the podcast or going to be interested in, in seeing the book and, and more information about it are schools that used to have... 250, 300 kids, and they're finding themselves in this spot. And so one of the key things that we have to get our heads wrapped around as Catholic educators when we're in that environment is how to make some disciplined decisions that are really focused on student learning um, and student faith formation and really the key core things about what we need to provide in a Catholic school setting. One of the ways schools get upside down with this, and I've seen this from firsthand experience, is that they've you know, they had 250 kids 10 years ago, and then after 10 years, all of a sudden they're at 160. And it's kind of happened gradually over those 10 years. And the problem is they haven't adjusted staff accordingly. And so they might have a teacher with 12 kids in a classroom or maybe multiple teachers with, with student populations under 15 or something. And that is where you cannot make that sustainable in a Catholic school. It's just not possible. And so those decisions need to be made um, as you're transitioning to this process where, and this is hard, this is leadership, and this has to be pastor leadership and principal leadership, diocesan leadership, but really thinking discipline-wise in terms of how do I make sure that everything I'm investing in, in terms of human resources or even support resources for curriculum are really geared toward uh, effective student learning. Um, and so that dis discipline, I think, is a, is a key piece to the how. And it's hard, right? So sometimes we have teachers who are just so rooted in the parish life um, that they've they've touched a generation of students in the school. Um, but we know that having having teachers grow in their profession over time is essential to the livelihood of our student academic growth and spiritual growth. And, um, you know, when, in talking to a number of principals in preparation of this, of this book, they said over and over again, you know, it's, it's almost harder to be a principal of a small school because I can't afford to have anyone not on mission or anyone who isn't strong in the classroom. They've had to make harder classroom staffing decisions because uh, you can't just put the kids in the other class or you can't. There's not enough wiggle room to say, well, okay, if this was not your strength as a teacher, I'm going to have you try this instead. Like there's just a lot of that can't happen, especially as students may have their teacher for multiple years. Um, and it, it takes a lot of coaching of your faculty 
um, to, to fit the model. You can't teach a multi-age class the same way that you would teach, you know, if you've taught first grade for the last 30 years, and then suddenly you're going to ask that teacher to do a multi-age classroom, that may be really hard. And so, um, you know, it's, it's important that school leaders see themselves as instructional coaches in these moments because you are doing some really innovative things. And again, this, this past year has been phenomenal at watching teachers grow in ways that we never thought would happen. So, um, you know, this is an exciting time to have, have those, those conversations with teachers to say, are you willing to try more innovations? Because I think we're going to shift the way that we are viewing the whole school now that we can see what we've learned about student learning. That's great. And so the essence of the how, uh, how we, this model and kind of how this framework and this support will work is really rooted in um, the domains of the NESBEX. And so governance and leadership, uh, mission and Catholic identity, academic excellence, operational vitality. And, uh, and the book will really kind of dig into each of these, these areas and try to help provide some specific focus and some specific suggestions and supports around these ideas for a Catholic micro school. Um, Jill, is there any one of those that you want to really dig into or maybe, maybe offer some insight into in terms of uh, supports and, and things that we're thinking about in terms of the book? Absolutely. Well, so all four domains have to be um, functioning, right? And I think sometimes what we miss as school leaders is that we're focusing on one area when in reality we had to worry about all four. And I think, um, you know, we know that parents will come to our schools when they are top quality. So academic excellence can't can't slide. You know, you can't afford to have a weak classroom um, because your students are going to be in there for multiple years. Um, with schools this size. And so that is absolutely true. And that's where the principal um, and school leader and governance board, whoever's working with the school, has to see all four of these parts and pieces. You know, school retreats and school um, service opportunities look different in a small school. Uh, governance and leadership looks different. You know, it's, you have to get the right people um, on the bus. I had, I had a principal tell me that she... Um, she knew she needed top for top professionals on her school board, but she also told me that she needed to under her board needed to understand her student population. So she also always has a couple people on her board on fixed incomes because they will think about the budget much differently than those with deep pockets. And and so governance and leadership has to look different too. Um, and then, of course, operational vitality, as you look at all of the operations, all the structures of that budget and all of the plans moving forward, it just looks different. And so, um, yeah, so I wish I could say, you know, you really just have to focus on this one area. <laughs> if we all do that, right, Kevin, we would be what none of this would be happening. Right. So um, so they all have to work together. And I think that's what you will you will see as those who are reading the book are going to find themselves in the, in the pages, you're going to see things or you're going to go, Oh, well, that's true of all, schools of all sides. Um, and that's absolutely true. But I think there's also some things that you have to do differently um, when your population is smaller and you're serving less families. Um, yeah. There's oh, another example actually comes to mind. There is a school who has 85 students. They've had that size for a long, long time. And every one of their, every one of their students is, um, is paired up with a homebound parishioner of that parish school and their pen pals. 
Now you could do this when you have 85 students. You know, you have the pen pal who um, who's telling you about their life and and the students are gaining relationship with um, elderly and homebound parishioners. I have not seen that. And, you know, again, challenge me if I'm wrong, but I have not seen that in our schools when we have four and 500 students in them. Mm. Um, but our small communities, um, urban or rural, can do things like this um, for mission effectiveness. Yeah, that's great. And I think you're absolutely right. One of the um, kind of ahas for me when started kind of converting it to a book and writing more of it um, kind of in the beginning part of this year, towards the end of last year, beginning part of this year, was how much I was writing. Well, like in every Catholic school, okay. uh, like in every Catholic school. And so there is a lot of, obviously, from the Nesbecks and everything else that people understand. I do think there's some very unique things about being small that are really important for principals and for those who support those schools to understand. Things like distributive leadership, uh, making sure the principal knows that, that he or she will often be a teacher as well. Um, if you're, again, you're thinking about that in terms of directing, attenergy, uh, directing energy and attention toward student learning, uh, the principal might be in the classroom teaching. And so obviously requiring leadership to be distributed in a more even-handed way perhaps is something to think about. The idea of collaboration, which Jill has already brought up, I mean, we have to be collaborative within a Catholic micro school setting. Again, something you want to see in every single Catholic school, but when you, are, when you have a small staff, a small student population, a small number of parents, um, that sense of collaboration and connection and reliance on one another, I think is, is just even, even more important. So, um, you know, there are those things that we will, we highlight in the book in terms of really stressing that when you move to this model, you know, a lot of it is something just good practice is good practice is good practice, but there are some strategies that I think people will take away and say, yeah, that's, that's really especially important when you've got a, a smaller, you know, staff and a, and a smaller number of students uh, within the school. Mm -hmm. And as I think about our, the goals of our children in our schools, I, I keep thinking about there are certain qualities of a small Catholic school. You just by sheer nature of numbers can't do it in a large. And that that is with student discipline and being role models of the faith for each other. We see in small schools that if there's a conflict among classmates, you can't you can't separate kids. You can't say, OK, well, you're going to move to this other homeroom. Um, that just can't happen when you're of a certain size. You're actually going to be in that same classroom with them for multiple years. And so our students learn restorative practices. They learn true reconciliation. Now, that's very hard. You know, our principals are in a tough spot when they are when they are managing not just what happens within the school day, but also in community for just a small number of families to get along <laughs> for the for the you know duration of, of them being in the school is a lot of work, but that's what we're called to do as Catholics is to model um, restorative practices and relationship building. And, and this builds students who are going to be tomorrow's leaders because they can work in community and, um, and they know their leaders well and they've learned from their examples over time. So there are certain things that are true, and I, and I hope that rings true for those of you who are listening, who lead small schools, that you know that that is very unique about your school population. And we know that, um, we know that there's strength there that we need to consider. So one final aspect of how, Jill, um, I want to just address is, um, is the idea of technology. And I think sometimes when we think about having a multi-age classroom, a smaller school environment, 
Um, I know a lot of folks probably think, gosh, we need to use some technology to help differentiate instruction, to help deliver content, to help to manage different functions within the school. I think all those things are valid to be considering um, to be considered while you're moving to this model. But I also think it's really important to stress, and I know you've seen this yourself, Jill, is that technology is not a prerequisite. You don't absolutely positively need technology to uh, to run an effective uh, Catholic micro school. Um, and so I think that's just an important point to stress uh, within that how, that technology obviously can be a vital support for many, many, many schools that are moving to this model, but it's not something that's um, automatically necessary for every single school. I, I agree. And I think my thinking has evolved over time on this. Um, the first examples I've had of a Catholic micro school was very tech-heavy. Tech heavy. So as students are self-pacing or individualized approaches were used as students pace through their material online, almost like a flipped classroom or a hybrid of a flipped classroom, you would see online portfolios and you, you can do that. And we, we know that we can do that very well now um, over the last year or two with, with developing um, student management systems and, and all of the technologies available to us. But we've also seen strength, and I, this is where I've grown, in understanding how um, Catholic homeschooling networks work or even those who are in small rural schools who don't have internet access or stable internet access to their buildings, they're still doing the work of a Catholic micro school. So the instructional practice doesn't necessarily have to rely on heavy technology, um, but it can. And I think there's a broad range of excellence there um, that doesn't really sway me one way or the other. And so the more examples that I see, the more examples I see. Like it's a very, very broad range. That's great. Well, uh, we've gone a little long. I think it's been a very worthy conversation. Um, and I guess what I would close with and then take any thoughts you might have, Jill, is that I think the dream maybe for this book, if, I, if we have a dream for this book, is that it can, it can initiate a conversation that needs to continue to take place for the next five to 10 years. I mean, this is something that I think we need to be involved with. We need to be thinking about, uh, you know, as you said, we still have to have focus on growth. We still want to increase enrollment in many of our schools. We want to think innovatively about new programs that can bring more kids into our schools. That, that has to be continued. We're not, we're not saying that gets diminished, but another huge part of our Catholic school story over the next five to 10 years has to be, how do we support these schools that have fewer students in a way that's going to be effective for the students to learn their faith, to learn academics, to be uh, to, to graduate, uh, to become productive members of, of society, um, and, and really intentionally um, moving in that direction. And hopefully this book is step one to initiate those conversations, to initiate more networking, to initiate more professional development, to initiate more thinking around this concept that will grow and develop uh, in the coming years. Absolutely. This is the beginning. And I think uh, it's also very important for us to note that we are not the experts on Catholic micro schools. We're just, we were willing to start this conversation. And I think that's, um, that sometimes is the biggest step because if we talk about this, we're going to get better at it. And I think I look forward to our readers um, telling us all the ways we should have talked about certain things that we didn't, because that means that there's a lot of expertise out in the field. And uh and then we can share all that expertise in future NCA moments. Indeed, indeed. Well, Jill, thanks. Uh, well, thanks for your partnership, of course, um, on this. This is it's been great. Um, 
we've had a great time partnering together on this. And, you know, of course, anyone who's written a book and, and gone through that process knows it can be a grind in their challenges and difficulties and struggles. And we are, we know we're at a point now where we're going to have a book, which is, which is great for us because <laughs> there've probably been moments over the last few months where that hasn't been a hundred percent sure. So, um, we're excited about that and, uh, and looking forward to sharing it, um, as we, uh, as we, uh, get later into the spring. So. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. This has been fun. Um, and we're looking forward to the conversations that this will spark. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for joining us for NCEA podcast. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, next time very soon. God bless. Bye.